Welcome to Post Doom, regenerative conversations exploring overshoot grief, grounding, and gratitude. I'm Michael Dowd, your host. And in this conversation, recorded in June of 2020, I speak with Max Wilbert. Max has been a longtime contributor to uh, Deep Green Resistance. He's got a book coming out uh, in March of 2021, co-authored with uh, Lear Keith and Derek Jensen called Bright Green Lines. He writes prophetically about a whole range of subjects, all related to genuine sustainability as opposed to faux sustainability. And he's a profound critic or critiquer of civilization and things that get called solutions to our climate crisis and sustainability crisis and are anything but that because we're living in a predicament. So I find Max to be a profoundly inspiring young prophetic voice and uh, I think you'll enjoy this. Well, Max, I'm delighted that uh, you were willing to be a part of this series. Uh, I only became aware of your work uh, through uh, DGR, Deep Green Resistance, some of your writings there, uh, and I've since explored your website. But I wanted to welcome you this, to this post-Doom series and invite you at the start here that anybody who's not familiar with your work, um, help us get you. I mean, help us know what you're best known for, what you're passionate about, that sort of thing. I am a writer, an organizer. I've been involved in wilderness guiding for many years, taking young people out onto the land. And these days I focus mainly on organizing for deep green resistance. And so the work that I do is focused on industrial civilization, identifying industrial civilization as the root of the major problems that we are facing in the world today and working to develop a culture of resistance and encourage people and assist in the development of a culture of resistance to industrial civilization to maximize the chances for a beautiful future, you know, a biodiverse future, a future in which human beings and all sorts of other forms of life can thrive. Because obviously, I think as probably most people watching this know, we're headed in the wrong direction so say uh, i'm imagining there'll be, there will be people watching this or listening to this who are not familiar with deep green resistance so say a little bit about dgr yeah deep green resistance was originally it began as a series of workshops the first one was held in 2007 and there were a dozen or two held over the next four or five years and then the ideas were written down into a book form that was released in 2011 the same title, Deep Green Resistance. And the core idea of Deep Green Resistance is that, again, industrial civilization is destroying the planet. The main forces that are driving global warming, that are driving species extinction, that are driving deforestation, desertification, the rise in oceanic dead zones, soil erosion, all these different ecological problems that we see, as well as many of the social problems that we see, all of these are dependent upon our modern high energy industrial production process. So we really look at the global industrial economy as an occupying force on this planet, as a destructive force on this planet. And we think that when people identify with that system, when people wanna protect that system, on one hand, it makes sense because so many of us are completely dependent upon the grocery store, on the electric grid on all the things that come from this global economy, right? The medicine, the industrial medicine. 
but at the same time, we look at that as a sort of Stockholm syndrome situation, because ultimately this system is killing all life on the planet and it's impoverishing and destroying most, if not all of human life as well. I mean, we're living in an era where the possibility of future human generations to even exist is being foreclosed. The po that possibility is getting narrower and narrower all the time, right? So we look at this system as an occupying force, as a destructive force. And so deep green resistance is about how do we deliberately dismantle that system? So I think a lot of people are familiar with the idea of collapse and the idea that civilizations tend to destroy their own ecological foundations and then they collapse. And that's what's happening now, right? Just like it happened in ancient Egypt, in Rome, in all kinds of different civilizations throughout history. The difference now is that this industrial civilization is global and it's powered by fossil fuels. So that's like pouring gasoline onto a fire. It's an accelerant, right? So the scale of the destruction, the depth of the destruction is deeper and broader than it ever has been before in human history. So that's why we're seeing ecological crisis, not just on a local level and a regional level tied to specific empires and civilizations located in one geographic region, but globally. And we're seeing these existential crises like climate change that threaten to undermine the basis of human survival and the survival of most other species on the planet. So given that we have this Stockholm syndrome situation, we- Say, say more about the Stockholm syndrome for those that aren't familiar with that. Yeah, Stockholm syndrome, I think the idea comes from a situation that took place in Stockholm, I assume, where a, a person was, taking, was kidnapped as part of some sort of bank robbery uh, situation, or I, maybe it was several people were inside a bank that was being robbed and they were held hostage. I believe that's the, the situation. And these people, it went on for several days or an extended period of time. And over time, the hostages increasingly started to identify with their captors. And they started to take the side of their captors. And psychologists afterwards were looking at this situation and why were these hostages actually supporting, you know, not, not just emotionally and mentally, but materially supporting, they started to support the, the hostage takers and the, the, the thieves. And what they found was that essentially, if you're in a situation where your survival depends upon pleasing those people, upon going along with the situation, upon sticking with the status quo and not challenging what's happening, if your life depends on that, then your mind to avoid cognitive dissonance, to promote your survival, to be safe, will start to identify with the, the captors. And so that's how we look at industrial civilization. And I think one reframing that really helps with this is, you know, I live on Kalapuya indigenous land in what's now called Oregon. And if you take the perspective of different indigenous communities around the planet and you look at industrial civilization, then it becomes much more clear that it's an economy of occupation, that it's an occupying force. And if you take the perspective of the redwood forests where you live, you know, where they're logging old growth right now in the Matol watershed and throughout, you know, the, the, the West and into BC and Vancouver Island and Alaska and Canada and all over the world. If you take the perspective of the old growth forest, then it's much more clear 
that this industrial economy is an occupying force, a destructive force. It's not a life-affirming process. And it also becomes clear that that doesn't mean humans are inherently destructive. But I know that's something you wanted to touch on later, so we'll leave that point. One of the things I appreciate about DGR uh, is that you all consistently, and you have consistently, recognize that civilization is the problem, that civilizations are inherently destructive of the living world upon which we depend because we don't treat the living world as a greater thou. We treat the living world as a lesser it. Um, so say a little bit more about not just your critique of industrial civilization, but your critique of civilization in general. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And to tie it to my own family, my, my own history, my mom's side of the family comes from what's now Norway. And the people who live in what's now Norway were indigenous people not that long ago, a few thousand years ago, before they were Christianized, before they were conquered by the Romans, before their pagan nature-based society, their ecologically focused society was destroyed and colonized by an empire. They had a completely different way of interacting with the world. And it's the way that humans do all over the planet. There are thousands and thousands of examples of different cultures living in extremely different ways because they live in different places. You know, if you live in Mongolia versus Norway versus what's now South Africa versus, you know, Chile, then your life way, your culture is going to be extremely different. But what you will find is this universal reverence for the natural world across indigenous communities. And that is an adaptive survival trait. That is something that humans developed over thousands and hundreds of thousands of years as a means of giving thanks to the source of all life, as a means of respect and reciprocity and encoding that in culture. And that's why it's so interesting to talk to you, Michael, because of your focus on religion and science and bringing the two of those together. And I think that many people look at the worldviews of indigenous people and they just think, you know, that's some hokey bullshit. They just made up their whatever connection, you know, connection mythology. And when I look at that, I see, you know, mythologies that people, that nature-based communities come up with to survive are incredibly complex technologies and methods of organizing human society that lead humans to act in certain ways they create certain patterns of behavior that mean that those people will not destroy the land on which they depend over the long term. And that is the basis of all human sustainability. That's the basis of a future. That's how you leave a living world for your children. And if you live in one place over generation after generation after generation, all you have to do is pay attention to what's happening and tell stories to each other to understand the long-term patterns. If you're taking too much of a certain plant or a certain animal and you are being destructive in a certain way in your activities, it becomes obvious very clear if very quickly if you are paying attention, right? Yes. And what, what happens with civilization is that we lose that connection. We lose that intimate relationship with the natural world. And it's not some people like to think that connecting with nature and learning sustainability is this really 
super complex, almost impossible to understand thing. And I completely disagree. Nature is dynamic. It's always changing. It's in a, a states of equilibrium are always temporary in nature, right? Even if you have climax old growth forests that are very stable communities, eventually there's going to be an earthquake or there's going to be a fire or a tsunami or something. And that will unleash the next series of changes going through that natural community, right? So humans can participate in that like any other creature. We can be part of that process. And the thing is, there's a difference between participating in the process humbly as an equal or even as a lesser, lesser partner of other beings and attempting to dominate the process. And that's what we see in civilization is really a domination mentality. It's a colonial mentality, an imperialist mentality. And I think that civilization, I don't know if you're familiar with William Koki, uh, but he's an anti-civ, old anti-civ author. I have this book that he wrote called The Collapse of Civilization and the Seeds of the Future. I only met him once. He's kind of a wild dude, a bit out there. I don't really know him, but he talked about civilization as the culture of empire. That's the term he used for it. And I like that because civilizations throughout history almost always link imperialism and war against humans with imperialism and war against the natural world. And that's what an empire is. It's a society that is based on war, that's based on expansion. And if you are not willing to accept the limits of the ecological communities in which you live, if you're not willing to pay attention and humbly learn the boundaries of your community and what it can support, you know, how much food can the land produce? How, how large of a population can it support? What sort of activities can it support? If you're not willing to learn those lessons, then you will destroy the land around you, right? Exactly. And because if you destroy the land around you, your only option is to go somewhere else. And that's where you get into imperialism against other humans because there are other people living in that other place where you need to go live. And that's a pattern that we see playing out today. You know, look at the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. This is a pattern of ecological imperialism where you have this society, the United States, and more broadly, the other client states of the American empire, and they need oil. They've extracted most of what they could get in the U.S., and so they start to look for it in other regions. And if there are people who don't want the U.S. there, then they'll send in the military and they'll take it by force, right? Exactly. And often this isn't necessarily done directly. You know, this is often facilitated through free trade agreements, through international law, through uh, institutions like the World Bank and uh, how they use loans and assistance programs to poor countries in order to force them to commodify their quote-unquote natural resources. So it's not always like blatant. We're just going to go take their resources and get the hell out of there with their stuff, right? But this is the pattern of civilization for thousands of years now. And I don't want people to feel hopeless about that because as long as there has been civilization, there has been resistance. And there have been communities that have lived in different ways without imperialism, you know, cultures that weren't based on empire for hundreds of times longer than civilization has existed. 
And those communities still exist today. They're still alive. And, you know, this, this culture is working to colonize, to assimilate, to destroy those peoples in all kinds of different ways. But that tendency will always be there because at, at the root, humans are animals and we live on land like any other animal and we require habitat, we require food. And this means an ecology. We have to participate in ecology. You know, I think we have a natural connection to the land, a natural sense of these things because it's in our DNA. I mean, going back for hundreds of thousands of years, human beings have lived in relationship with the natural world. And it takes a hell of a lot of propaganda and a hell of a lot of violence against children, especially, to, uh, to, to brainwash people into the domination mindset, into the exploitation mindset. And it's, it's working, obviously. That mindset is dominating the world because they have all the money and all the resources. Obviously, if you're willing to cut down the entire forest and sell it to a corporation, you're going to make a lot more money than somebody who's not willing to do that. And so we, that's one of the problems with civilization is because cultures of empire tend to have less moral scruples and tend to glorify violence and warfare and exploitation, they have been very effective in that violence and warfare and exploitation. And that has allowed them to mostly dominate the world. And that's why, that's why so many people, when they think about civilization, they have a really hard time understanding that civilizations are actually a very small part of human history and the human experience. And it's because those civilizations have dominated the world for thousands of years. And they've written the history books and their historians have taught all the children, including us, and they own the TV stations and they own the publishing houses and they cre have created much of the culture to which we've been born in. Yeah. Well, this, this leads me to want to ask the question that, you know, we touched on before that you wrote about and that I recorded. I, I've, I've recorded anybody listening to this or watching this. Um, I've already recorded two and we'll probably be recording another half dozen or more of Max's writings. Uh, and it's up on SoundCloud. So if you just put his name in SoundCloud, uh, you'll find it. But to somebody who says, well, you know, hey, we humans are just, you know, inherently destructive. We're just, you know, we're a self-destructive species. We're a ecocentric uh, or, or ecocidal species. Um, how do you counter that? How, like, what would be, I mean, I, I obviously know how you do it because I read it and I thought it was great. But just orally here, share uh, how that that's not the case. Yeah, I think, like I said earlier, I think sustainability is an adaptive trait for human beings. We wouldn't be here if our ancestors had destroyed all the land around them and left themselves with nothing to eat. And I think that's different from saying that we impact things. Every living being creates impacts and changes where they go. And that's especially true for keystone predators. And that's what human beings are. We're keystone predators. We're like a wolf or uh, an orca whale, right? Whenever we come into an environment where we haven't been present in the past, we will cause a lot of changes because we're a large creature. We do a lot of things, right? And that will create impact. The question is, does that have to be destructive in the long term? 
And the answer is clearly no. And, you know, before we started recording, I mentioned briefly, I've been reading this book, Beyond the War on Invasive Species. It's written by a woman, Dow Orion, who lives near me uh, here in Oregon. And she writes about the wilderness mythology. And I think this is something that we see a lot in the Western culture, is this dichotomy between industrialism and cities and wilderness. And we see this very simple binary setup where you have, you know, you have the industry and the pollution and the destruction of cities, and then you have the purity of wilderness that's untouched by human hands. And the thing is, that wilderness idea is actually largely a myth. When the first European colonists arrived on this continent, they found what they thought was an empty paradise. But what happened was the first people who got there, they left a lot of disease, they brought a lot of disease, right? And those diseases rampaged through the continent and killed tens of millions of indigenous people. So when the early explorers started moving through the Great Plains and into the Rocky Mountains and into the West, they encountered landscapes that were depopulated compared to what they used to be, right? And they encountered these areas that they described as vast wildernesses. This is not how it was not that long before. There were people living in pretty high abundance throughout all these natural communities. And they were maintaining these communities in states of high biodiversity and abundance because of their actions, right? And so one example is I live in the Southern Willamette Valley in Washington or in Oregon. And this is land of the Kalapuya people here. And when the first white settlers showed up, they described the valley as being full of smoke all summer long. And it was because the Kalapuya would set fires in the grasslands here. And what these fires did was they burned the grasses and they prevented certain tree species from establishing, like Douglas fir and they kept ponderosa pine down. And they encouraged the proliferation of other species, like camas bulbs, which are edible, various other forms of flowering plants, uh, lush growth of all the grasses, and then those grasses would bring in ungulates like deer and elk and would bring in bear and other species who could be eaten by the indigenous people. And these fires also encouraged the growth of the oak trees. We have Gary Oak, Quercus Garyana, and the black California black oak here. And those tree species are keystone species here. They provide a huge amount of food through their production of acorns not just for humans, but for many other species. Now, one perspective on that could say that the Kalapuya were destroying the natural environment and they were preventing the creation of old growth climax forest communities in the Willamette Valley by intentionally creating disturbance in the land through fire. Now, another way of looking at what they were doing is you could say, the Kalapuya were creating a, a, a medium level of disturbance through fire. There's this hypothesis in ecology that if you have incredibly high amounts of disturbance, biodiversity crashes, right? If you clear cut the forest, 
biodiversity crashes, if you pave the wetland over, you know, if you plow up the entire grassland, biodiversity crashes because nothing can survive. It's too much disturbance. Now on the other end of the spectrum, if there's too little disturbance, then biodiversity also tends to decline. Now, when you get into these climax forest communities, often there can be less biodiversity than in what they call edge habitat, right? And so you think about a creature like beavers, they create wetlands by creating dams, right? They change the ecology of their area profoundly, profoundly by cutting down large trees and creating these dams. They open up the forest and they create this habitat that's incredibly lush and supportive for fish, for birds, for all kinds of different animals who come in to, to drink the water, who come in to nest in the trees on the edges of these clearings that they create and come swoop down and catch insects in the... So yeah. the Kalapuya people, what they were actually doing was they were maintaining the Willamette Valley into in a early to mid successional state. Yes, exactly. And they did that in a way that increased biodiversity. So right now, this ecology, which is called oak savanna, is the most threatened natural habitat in the United States. I think less than 1% of it remains. Most of it has been destroyed for agriculture, it's been plowed under, and it's been turned into subdivisions. But what has also happened to some of it is that because fire is no longer allowed here, because people have built houses in all these different places, all these Douglas fir trees and ponderosa pines have moved in and they start to shade out the native oak trees and they create, that's not to say they're bad, right? It's not to say they're bad. Of course, they're not bad. They're just doing what they do. They're just growing. But the Kalapuya were deliberately creating an ecosystem. They were gardening. They were gardening the entire landscape to encourage certain ecological regimes that were beneficial for humans and that were also beneficial for non-humans, right? And this this created one of the most lush and biodiverse places on the planet. When the first trappers and white colonizers showed up in this region, they described the Willamette Valley as being so lush with food, with wild game, with birds, with waterfowl, with acorns, with all kinds of wild, wild edible plants and medicinal plants. They called it their breadbasket, right? It was the place you went when you needed to rest after your hard days of trapping in the mountains, right? So. But they were unaware that that had been co-created by people who lived with the right. land as a vow, uh, as teacher, as provider, as creator, to use a more religious term, but you know, the, la the land is our creator, sustainer, and end. And if we live in a partnership co-creative, respectful, humble relationship with the land, we can actually uh, live in the way that you're describing. And I get that the colonizers didn't, didn't recognize that uh, in, in most cases. So one of the yeah. things I want to come back to is sort of the heart of this series is allowing my guests or inviting my guests to share their story, their pilgrimage, their whatever, of how were you raised? What was your worldview like living in this culture? And then how did you come to uh, the worldview and the work that you now have? And then what were any particularly important milestones or turning points or books or people that you met? Like, take as long as you want, but give us a sense of how 
you know, your trajectory from being, you know, growing up to where you are now, and then what were the significant um, uh, mileposts or turning points or whatever along the way? Hmm. Yeah, so I grew up in Seattle, and my parents were children of the 60s, so they were participating. How old are you? I'm 32. So they were participating in social movements. And, you know, my mom grew up marching against the, against the Vietnam War and the civil rights movement. My dad was involved to some extent in supporting anti-apartheid struggles and involved in anti-nuclear struggles. So I, I was very lucky to grow up in a family that, you know, that valued peace, that valued the natural world, that valued anti-imperialism, anti-racism that had some really good fundamental values. And I was very lucky that, you know, Noam Chomsky books were on the bookshelf when I was growing up and, you know, Howard Zinn and, and, you know, all sorts of critical media analysis and gerrymander, you know, in the absence of the sacred for arguments for the elimination of television. Um, mm -hmm. So a lot of the deep ecology work, the cultural critique work that the empire anti-empire, anti-imperialism work that was done by people, you know, in the 50s and 60s and 70s really was a formative influence on me, even though, you know, I was just a child or, you know, many of those people were dead or I didn't meet those people particularly, but they influenced my family a lot and that came through to me. And so, you know, I grew up, I think the WTO protests in Seattle, for those who don't know, the World Trade Organization, had a big meeting in Seattle in 1999. Tens of thousands of people showed up to protest the event and they ended up getting brutally attacked by police in a scenario very reminiscent to what we're seeing now with the movement for black lives. And you know, hundreds of people were arrested and thousands of people were tear gassed and beaten on the streets and the WTO meeting was pretty effectively disrupted. And so I started to get explicitly involved in politics when I was pretty young, I was lucky. My sister brought me into a, a youth-based undoing racism group. And so it was all young people like me. I was probably one of the youngest when I started around 12 or something like that. But uh, you know, it was all people under 18 with maybe one or two adults hanging around to uh, help make sure we didn't do anything too stupid. <laughs> and um, we did protests against police brutality. We educated each other. But there was this really rich political ferment happening right then because of the WTO protests, because you had so many different people who had come together and built an alliance to fight against this oppressive institution. It was a time in which there was a lot of cross-pollination between different movements happening. And I was lucky to be educated in that ferment, you know? So some of the people who I learned from, you know, one of them, one, one person was a, uh, was a African, Afro-Brazilian guy. And he taught us all about capoeira and the history of slavery and the slave trade into Brazil and the resistance to it and how people created art as a form of struggle and used capoeira as a way to train in self-defense to defend themselves and rise up against their their masters and you know one of the people who i learned from was from southern mexico and 
he was very supportive of the Zapatistas, you know, and he was 17, 18 and was teaching me, me as a 13 year old about subcomandante Marcos and their organizational structure and, you know, how they had brought in these sort of Western, you know, elements of Marxism and anarchism and different things, but it was all very based in their indigenous traditions of, of the region of Chiapas. And, and I learned from, you know, all kinds of different people who had different elements of the struggle. And that was an incredibly useful political education for me, just to be around that diverse group of people who had these different critical perspectives that I was just allowed to soak in. You know, I started to get some feminism. I started to get some anti-racism. I started to get critique of, anti of the war and anti-imperialism. Mm -hmm. And so over the years, I got involved in environmentalism a little more deeply and i remember when i first really started to understand that there was something wrong i went to the capital of washington state olympia to there was some like environmental festival and lobbying day so you know i'm i'm probably 16 or something like that and we go to the Capitol building. It's the first time I've ever done anything like this. And we go in and we talk to, I don't know, some representative or staff person or something. And I don't even remember what I was saying or anything, but you know, it was probably protect the rainforest or something basic like that, right? And there was a fair outside. So we go out and different, there are different booths and people pinning out literature and pamphlets and educating each other and so on. And somehow I get invited to go for a ride in this Humvee. And it's a biodiesel Humvee. And so <laughs> it's a crazy story. I get in this Humvee, you know, and I don't know if you've ever been in one, but this was the origi original Humvee, you know, the huge, the military style ones. And it's so wide, you know, like I'm sitting in the passenger seat and I can stretch out my whole arm and I can't touch the driver, right? And it's this massive vehicle. And I ju I'm just thinking to myself, myself like you know i'm interested in environmentalism because of overconsumption because we don't need sorry let me i'll close those windows in a sec because we don't need all this this stuff that we rely on right that that people think we rely on and that was the first time that i sort of had an inkling that something was very wrong in the environmental movement that it was being co-opted, that it was being taken in some directions that were very, very problematic and very, very exactly. destructive, deeply destructive and deeply, uh, deeply a deep betrayal of the fundamental principles of the environmental movement. And yes, I couldn't yes. articulate it. I couldn't articulate it at that time, but I felt, I, I felt it. I understood that something was wrong with that. And it took me many years to really figure that out to really grapple with what that meant and explain it so you know the the next really formative experience for me probably happened when i was about 20 years old i was living in bellingham washington and a friend invited me to go see Derek jensen speak i had no idea who this guy was never heard of him in my life and I just said, sure, you know, I'll go, I'll mostly just to hang out with my friend. I just wanted to hang out with my friend. And so I went to the talk and 
I remember that I walked out afterwards and I was shaking. Literally, I was shaking. And it was because I was shaking because I understood that my life had been changed. Exactly. And I understood that what Derek did, and Derek's a friend now, he's somebody who I respect a lot. Um, what Derek did and what Derek helped me with was to bring together these different elements into a comprehensive picture of what was happening. You know, before that, that point, I had always sort of compartmentalized things. And I think many people do this. They, they talk about anti-racism, but they're not interested in saving the planet. They talk about feminism, but they're not interested in anti-capitalist struggle. They talk about whatever it is, right? People like to operate in these little bubbles. And what Derek helped me to understand was that this was all part of the same issue, the same cultural impulses, the same culture of empire and domination. And that we cannot address any one of these problems without comprehensively addressing the others, that they are all interlinked, that we will not be completely human until we see all the interlinks between these, until we internalize the deep connections between these different issues, and until we collectively begin to work to stop all of those things together, right? And the other thing that the other reason I was shaking was because Derek helped me understand I already had a basic grounding in revolution. You know, I, like I said, I mentioned the Zapatistas, I mentioned these different struggles. You know, I first read the Communist Manifesto when I was in fifth grade, I think, you know, <laughs> I don't think I understood it really at all, but, uh, you know, and I'm not, a, I don't call myself a communist now, but I had some basis in revolutionary ideas a little bit, right? Mm -hmm. I, and I considered myself a, a revolutionary to some extent, even if I wouldn't have articulated that or so on. But like I had been radicalized by music, by culture, by the people I was around. And what Derek helped me understand is that these are revolutionary struggles. Not that... And that doesn't mean that revolution is the only way to do things, that we all got to pick up our guns and run into the woods and, you know, start taking pot shots. That's not what it meant to me at all. But what I understood at that moment was that the revolutionary social change that we need is not a game. It's not a side project. It's not a hobby. It's not even activism. It's something that people have been living and dying for, for generations. And exactly. those of us like me who live in the heart of empire, who have been by complete chance, you know, blessed and cursed with the privilege of being born a white male in the US empire in, you know, in the, in the late 1900s, right? Those people like me, we have an obligation to take part in that struggle. Not because, not merely because we should help other people, but because that is the only way for us to become fully human. That is the only way for us to fully live up to our responsibilities. That is the only way for us to fully become adults in this era, in this culture which infantilizes everyone, which wants to turn us into mindless consumers, who all we do is go home and watch TV at the end of the day and go to work and buy the latest product. 
that the only way for us to truly reach self-actualization and community actualization is to overthrow these systems that are dominating and destroying the planet. And I understood. Well, say, yeah, say, say more about that because I'm imagining, I don't know this, and I apologize for interrupting, um, but I'm imagining that most people that share your mind and heart, that share this, this, this desire to uh, um, uh, halt or bring down or stop uh, these, to resist these, uh, uh, I want to say demonic forces, that is these forces that seek to maximize wealth and profit for individuals or corporations or nations at the expense of the future and the body of life upon which we depend. 10 years ago, 15 years ago, many of us thought that we could actually transform the systems in time. And right. that, that um, sort of the, the plummeting of, 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 uh, of believability uh, of the, that it would actually transform the systems in time is now something that those of us that are still committed to love and action or activism or doing what we can to resist these structures of, of uh, ecocide. Um, how do you stay inspired when you probably actually don't believe that we can stop these systems in time? Um, what still motivates you started touching on it already here, but what, but what motivates you to do, to be engaged in love and action in some really profound ways even knowing that there's, you know, we're not going to stop industrialism from hitting the wall of its, the consequences of its own action. So what motivates you, what inspires you on a day-by-day -day basis to do this work? And how would you coach or counsel another, even a younger person, um, to engage in love and action, even when there, it seems like, what's the point? Uh, we're not going to stop these systems. Yeah, what motivates me is love, ultimately. I love the world. I love my family. I love my friends, my partner. You know, I love these oak trees growing outside my window here. I love the ocean beaches along the Pacific Ocean. I love the Salish Sea. I don't just say those things. I mean, I, I deeply love these beings who I share this life with. And, you know, I've been very blessed with, with beauty in my life, with, with, wondrous experiences with experiences of the divine you know i don't consider myself a religious person in the traditional sense at all but with experiences of transcendence right and that's and what one thomas Berry would call incendence the the, right. the, yeah. the the beyond within that is the living world as a divine reality that we can live in in intimate rapport with or we can think to dominate and then that causes all yeah. problems yeah and that's that's one thing that this culture works to destroy deliberately i think because i think when you have those experiences of connection then you can't help but see through some of the bullshit in this culture right you know and i i I can't help but think that, you know, part of the reason that plant medicines like psychedelics have been demonized for so long is because they help shatter some of those illusions that are so comfortable for people, you know, and I'm not like advocating that everyone go out and take drugs. And especially because so many of those people use drugs as just a method of partying and not as a, as a spiritual medicine, right. As a very serious practice of building connection with self and with uh, larger than self beings. And 
this culture wants us to be frivolous, to be superficial, to be stressed out. The more stressed out you are, the easily you can be controlled, the easily, more easily you can be advertised to. You know, you will be a better consumer if you are stressed out, if you are not connected to yourself, not connected to your family, not connected to your land base. And so you asked about, you asked about people, how people react to this sort of mindset that I'm talking about. And people mostly react with fear. And it's different types of fear, but I, I understand it because it's scary. And the reality is, if you want to grapple with ecological collapse, if you want to, even beyond that, start actively fighting back against the systems that are creating ecological collapse, that involves a lot of pain. Mm -hmm. And it involves a lot of danger. You know, one of the articles that I sent you earlier was called In the Event of My Demise. And I, I named that essay after a poem that was written by Tupac Shakur. And Tupac, I don't know if you know, but he was, you know, rapper, hip hop artist. And he, Tupac had this very conflicted history and legacy. His mother and his, uh, I believe his stepfather, his godfather were in the Black Panther Party. They were part of a very serious revolutionary tradition. He was raised very poor. His mom was addicted to crack for much of his childhood. Uh, and he, he was an artist from a very young age. You know, he went to an art school. He studied theater and poetry and literature and went on to become this musician who has this very conflicted legacy that's full of misogyny and self-critique and, and you know, beauty and adoration of material wealth and that in so many ways just encompasses what the experience is of growing up as a poor black man in this society that hates black people, that despises black people, right? So I think that there are a lot of things to be learned from hip hop and it's something that I've enjoyed and studied a lot. And Tupac wrote this poem called uh, In the Event of My Demise. And so I wrote an essay with the same title because I, I traveled recently to the Philippines and I was thinking the Philippines was the most dangerous country in the world for environmentalists um, last year. And I wasn't, I was thinking about my own death, right? And I've received death threats before, not particularly credible, not particularly serious seeming, but most people never receive death threats in their life. That's not a normal thing for most people, at least most people like me, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking about my death and I'm, I'm uh, both afraid of death and respectful of death and curious about death and I think have all the emotions that probably all of us have. Um, and so I, I wrote this essay about in the event of my demise, just about contemplating mortality in the face yeah. of these brutal destructive systems. And 
you know, one of the things that, uh, that Tupac's mother said to him as he was becoming famous was, you know, fame will destroy you. Like this culture will destroy you and it will consume you. And, you know, that's, that is one of the tragedies of celebrity in this culture is, you know, I think celebrities are deeply traumatized and destroyed by their own celebrity. And that's not exactly. to excuse, that's not to excuse any of the bullshit and the terrible things that a lot of celebrities do and the terrible ideas that they promote and so on, right? But looking at, I think we need to understand how destructive this whole celebrity is. Celebrities are really people who are, their entire personalities become commodities for capitalism, right? Their entire lives become something that is for sale, that is a product, that is, it doesn't belong to them anymore. It belongs to the public, right? And I think that's why so many celebrities end up addicts and, you know, completely hit rock bottom or overdose or whatever, all these different things, right? And so I think a lot of people feel fear about facing these ecological issues, about facing collapse, about facing the destruction of the planet, and about fighting back for very legitimate reasons. Mm -hmm. And that fear is real. It's something to be concerned about. It's something to think about. And I mean, ultimately for me, the question is what can I live with? What do I want? What do I want for myself? What, uh, what does self-respect look like for me? What does it mean to act in accord with my own values and my own principles? Um, what does it mean to be in right relationship with my own spirit, right? Yes. And I know, you know, even on the small scale, if I do something bad, if I offend one of my friends or even somebody who I don't know that well, if I treat somebody poorly and I never apologize and I never, you know, try and make things right, like I'm going to feel bad bad about that. I'm going to carry that. Right. Exactly. And that's not something that I could live with. And, you know, frankly, I would rather, I would rather live a complete life and a life that is um, not full of lies and self-deception and that is short than a life that is long and long and boring and self-destructive and full of deception. Yes. So I think we need courage. I think courage is one of the things that we need a lot of in this time. And I, I think that people need to understand that courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is the ability to keep going despite fear, despite exactly. the, the very real fear that you feel. And, you know, I think that takes community. Like we need to be, have honest conversations about these things and support each other. You know, because if you can't really do it alone, you know, I, after that Derek Jensen talk, I very quickly got involved in a group and it was very lucky because if it had just been me, I probably wouldn't have had the courage to keep going if I was alone. I needed to find other people who had the courage to confront those ideas in the same way because we're social creatures. We can't, we're not made to do things alone. And 
So I guess if I had any words for people who are trying to find the courage to, to act, to do something, to organize, to step forward, I guess I would say the only thing that we really have to lose is our lives, but perhaps more importantly, our self-respect. You remind me of my conversation, actually two conversations. One was with Roger Halem, uh, co-founder of Extinction Rebellion, where he said, it's not a matter of acting with uh, a sense that this is going to be effective in terms of transforming the system or whatever. It's a moral imperative. It's like, you need to look at yourself. You want to look at yourself in the mirror and be proud of yourself rather than, you know, uh, feeling like you're compromised or you're not being honest or whatever. And, uh, and then also the last, uh, the last conversation that was uploaded wasn't even a conversation I had. Terry Patton, a friend and colleague, had a conversation with Meg Wheatley um, uh, where she was speaking about, you know, sort of being a warrior for the human spirit. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of the difference between pre-doom activism uh, and post-doom activism. The title of this series is, you know, post-doom. Uh, conversations exploring overshoot grief grounding and gratitude and it's often a matter of self-respect and deep love as you said a love of the living world a love of the future a love of 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 life in all of its manifestations not just human and then doing what you would do with a beloved which is to defend or protect or you know seek justice or whatever uh, whether it has the possibility or any realistic possibility of being quote-unquote effective or not it's nonetheless what love motivates us to do on that point you know one thing that i wanted to say too that i think is very important is nobody who's really been involved in a revolutionary struggle in history goes into that struggle thinking to themselves i know exactly what i'm doing and i know that we are going to win right and I know exactly all the steps to get there. I think everyone who is involved in serious political movements throughout history, national liberation struggles, revolutionary movements, civil rights movements, people face fears and doubts and questions and is this gonna work? And the opponent seems so strong and so dominant. And yet, sometimes we win, right? Sometimes we win. And the thing is like, we see all these headlines year after year you know ipcc says five years until it's too late for blah blah blah, and 10 years until it's too late for blah 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 and how many of those deadlines have we passed already i go outside and the trees are still growing the birds are nesting the flowers are blooming the pollinators are flying from flower to flower my sister recently had a second child life is still here right? And I'm not going to give up on the word of some fucking scientist in some room somewhere who's going to tell me that it's too late, right? That's bullshit. It's not too late until every living thing outside my window is dead and everyone I know is dead. Then maybe I'll give up, right? Then maybe I'll give up. But to, to, it's, a, it's absurd to me to think that it is too late in many ways. It is too late for many things. You know, it's too late for the passenger pigeons. It may be too late for the permafrost. It may be too late for the methane under the Arctic Ocean. 
it may be too late for the last tigers on the planet, right? It may be too late for the salmon, but we don't know until it actually happens. We don't know until those creatures are actually gone, right? We don't know what the future is exactly going to look like. And if we, if we allow ourselves to become discouraged, if we allow ourselves to become depressed and complacent in the face of what is happening, then we're defeated. That's a mental defeat right there. And I think psychological warfare is one of the main strategies that this culture uses to, to defend itself because the reality is they can't watch everyone with a gun all the time, right? They need us to defeat ourselves. They need us to defeat ourselves in our minds. And that's why I think this idea is dangerous, the idea that it's too late. I don't think it's too late. I, I don't think it's too late at all. And I say that as somebody who actually, in 2010, I traveled to the Arctic with a group of climate scientists. So I have, I have literally walked on top of thawing permafrost. And I have seen forests falling over because the soil was melting away underneath them. And I've seen entire hillsides sliding away because the soil that had been frozen for 10,000 years is melting and bringing out mammoth bones and tusks and the, 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 the bones of these ancient creatures. So I have a very visceral understanding of how bad things are in different ways. And the thing is, if you love, you don't give up, right? Yes. I mean, if, if you're a single mom and you're working three jobs and you've got a you know, young kid, two young kids, you don't give up. Giving up is not an option, right? If you love, you don't, you don't give up. You can't. It's not a possibility. And that doesn't mean that your heart's not broken. And that doesn't mean that it's not really fucking hard. And that doesn't mean that you might not cry sometimes and just burst into tears. That doesn't mean that you might get burnt out sometimes and need to take a break and try and get away from everything. All those things happen, but you don't give up. I don't think you ever give up until literally, you know, literally your beloved is dead. And there's a lot of life left in this planet. A lot of life. Life wants to live so incredibly bad. And one of the things that I take heart from is that none of the climate models actually take into account the possibility of the collapse of industrial civilization. They don't look at that as a scenario. It's not something that even plays out into their mind. And I think that we would be astounded at the capacity of the natural world to heal if we were able to stop industrialism and allow the earth to actually flourish, right? I mean, we, I'm sure you've seen it before and many people listening have seen it. When, you know, when concrete is ripped out, when dams are removed, when agricultural fields are abandoned, when logged areas are allowed to naturally regrow, life returns and it returns very well. I mean, the natural world has survived meteor impacts. It's survived, you know, the oceans turning purple. It's survived carbon dioxide levels above 3000 parts per million in the past. It's survived mass extinction events, you know, this planet is incredibly resilient. And the question is, what can we do 
to provide the best possible future, right? Because there will be a future. I mean, that there is a possibility that this culture could destroy most, if not all, life on the planet. But that's only a possibility at this point. That's certainly not um, ordained. And, and if there is, I would rather the future look as biodiverse as possible, as lush as possible, and support humans living in beautiful ways if possible. Right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Amen. Well, we're preaching or we're singing from the same hymn book and I'm um, with you in heart, mind, soul, passion, um, et cetera. And uh, so bringing this conversation um, sort of to closure, one of the things I wanted to do, uh, you sent me a link to seven essays you've written when I asked you what were some of the ones that you felt were or that others have said are more, you know, the more important things or the better things that you've written. If you could just say a few sentences about each, just so anybody listening to this or watching this conversation can uh, dive more deeply into your own, into your own work. So uh, one that you wrote in July of this year, just a couple weeks ago, the life support systems of planet earth are failing. Yeah. So I've studied medicine, emergency medicine a bit. Like I mentioned, I've been a wilderness guide for many years. And so I'm a wilderness first responder, which is an 80 hour certification. And I've been one for a decade or so now. So I've had to do a lot of recertifications and so on. So I'm certainly not a, I'm not an EMT. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a medical professional, but I have a decent grounding in the basics of emergency medicine. And in this piece, I was trying to draw an analogy between shock in the human body and what's happening to the planet and i found it incredibly insightful exactly on that point cool cool i'm glad that was useful yeah for those who don't know shock in the human body it's not like i scared you a lot and now you're in shock it's uh shock is a volume problem so you've lost a lot of blood or you're having an allergic reaction and it's causing issues in the distribution of critical fluids and resources through your body. Um, a heart attack can cause shock because blood's not getting where it needs to go. And it's a very dangerous condition. And what I think is interesting about shock is the way I was taught is there are two phases of it. There's compensatory shock and decompensatory shock. And compensatory shock, the body is compensating for it. And so a person can actually be upright and talking. They can seem relatively normal, even though they've lost an incredible amount of blood or they've had a heart attack or they're having a serious allergic reaction or something else. And sometimes people are deceived into thinking that that person is going to be okay. Because obviously, if you're trying to help somebody, you really want them to be okay. But, you know, a medical professional would tell you and anybody who knows what they're doing would look at that patient and take their vital signs and understand this person is rapidly going to move into decompensatory shock very soon. And that's when a person dies. That's when it starts to get extremely serious very quickly. And so in this piece, I tried to draw some parallels between how that plays out and how ecology plays out, uh, the destruction of the natural world, because we're seeing a lot of warnings from scientists that increasingly natural ecosystems around the planet are just going to flip. They're going to enter a phase change where they've been able to sustain for a long time, despite the logging, despite all the destruction, 
and a certain point is reached and they just can't do it anymore and they start to disintegrate. Exactly. So when you wrote in April, uh, the collapse of the American empire. Yeah, so this is a piece, um, I don't know if you know Alfred McCoy, but he's a historian and critic of US empire. And he wrote a book called In the Shadows of the American Century recently, which is about the decline of American empire essentially and how this country has dominated the world economically, militarily for 70 years more than 70 years at this point. And that is rapidly coming to an end. Um, and so this piece is, is about what that means, what that could look like in the future, how that will affect our work in the future. I think a lot of people tend to assume that just because things in the past have been a certain way, that means they will be in the future. And I think the coronavirus kind of shook a lot of people out of that complacency because it was probably more so than any other event in my lifetime, maybe, um, something that completely changed everyone's day-to-day -day lives, you know, almost overnight. And exactly. I think we need to prepare for that and plan for that uh, so that we're not caught off guard by it. So you wrote one for the Earth Island uh, Journal, When the Lights Go Out, Dreaming of a Power Outage That Lasts Forever. Say something about that. Mm -hmm. that that's more of a narrative piece that's about a big winter storm we had out here a couple years ago. And I live in a rural area and power was out for five or six days. And uh, it was beautiful. You know, there were some challenges, but we couldn't work. We couldn't be on the internet. We couldn't, you know, do all these distractions. And um, life becomes a lot more simple. And I know when I was a kid, I think many people have the experience of when there's a power outage, it's actually really fun because you, uh, you pull out the candles and you, you know, you play board games or maybe you make a fire. And if you have a fireplace that probably never gets used normally, maybe you make a fire or something. And um, so this piece is about sort of linking that nostalgic experience that I had and I think other people have had with power outages where they're kind of kind of beautiful experiences. I know that's not true for everyone. You know, if you rely on industrial medicine or different things, then it can be a terrifying experience. And I understand that and I'm sympathetic. Um, and I'm linking this piece to, um, to the broader ecological issues. I think one of the lines yeah. in there is um, power corrupts. And I'm sort of expanding that to... Oh, yeah. Electrical yes, power. Yes, yes. The powers that be are, have so um, altered that it that uh, we can. It's legal evil. Uh, so say something about the legal system will not save the planet that you wrote in November 2019. Yeah. So I live outside Eugene, Oregon, as I've mentioned, and the federal district court that's located in Oregon uh, has been hearing a case from our children's trust which is, oh, yeah. I'm sure many people are familiar with it. It's a bunch of young people who are suing the federal government for failing to uphold the trust doctrine, which basically is the idea that the government holds public, holds natural resources in trust for future generations and should steward them wisely to allow future generations to have a chance for life. And I, I really applaud and appreciate what these young people are doing. And I think it can be a powerful method of organizing and struggle. But in this piece, I'm 
critiquing approaches that rely on the legal system for change because of the colonial basis of the legal system. Um, I have a quote in this article from Frederick Bastiat, who was actually a counter-revolutionary uh, in the mid-1800s. I think Marx uh, wrote some scathing critiques of Bastiat. Uh, but Bastiat had this quote how when a society is based on exploitation and theft, they will eventually codify that theft into law, right? Yes. And he was actually, when he said that, he was actually trying to critique uh, communists and socialists. But inadvertently, he very accurately described capitalism and the legal system in the United States. And we live in a legal system in which sustainability is illegal. Literally, it's illegal to live in sustainable ways, to build sustainable cultures, all kinds of the different activities, you know, from tiny houses to water catchment to intentional fires to uh, rotational living systems and nomadic living systems to all kinds, you know, to shutting down the fossil fuel infrastructure, to destroying pipelines, to, you know, stopping logging through nonviolent blockades. All of these things are illegal. So literally sustainability is illegal in this country. And so in this article, I'm just trying to warn people. I'm not trying to, you know, say that people who are doing that are terrible and I don't like you. I'm just trying to help build education around a, a deeper critique of the legal system and its potential for change. Um, yes. It's, it's potential as an avenue for change. Yeah, that's great. Mm. And a uh, love letter to a fierce revolutionary community written in October, 2019. Yeah. So that piece, I, I don't know, you've probably had this experience too, but social change is very messy at times. And there was a woman, Rosalie Little Thunder, who I believe she was a Lakota and she helped found the Buffalo field campaign in uh, Montana, which advocates and works for the last wild buffalo um, who live in and around Yellowstone National Park. And they do some fantastic work. But when they started that organization, Rosalie said, we're going to spend about 90% of our time dealing with human drama and human bullshit and 10% of our time actually fighting for the buffalo. And so in this piece, I'm just trying to send some appreciation and respect and love to people in my direct community in Deep Green Resistance and the broader community that I'm a part of who are doing the work um, because it's hard and it's thankless often. And it's, there's a lot of crap and there's a lot of hostility from all kinds of different people. And often it doesn't feel like we're making progress and it's slow and it's, drags on and on and so in this and we get in fights with each other and we hurt each other's feelings and we we you know we play out racism and we play out sexism and we make mistakes and we hurt each other and so in this piece i'm just trying to um say that and just give people give heart to people that like i think this is part of the process and this is you know, it's messy. It's, you know, I think it's like any relationship, um, you know, any intimate relationship. You're, you're going to get in fights. You're going to hurt each other's feelings. You're going to 
do stupid things. Um, and hopefully you can learn and you can love each other and you can stick to what's important. And so that's, that's what I'm doing in this piece is literally just writing a love letter to comrades in the, in the struggle. Well, Max, anything you'd like to say just to bring this to closure? This has been a wonderful conversation. I'm so grateful that, uh, that you could do this. Uh, anything you'd like to say to, to be complete? Well, I had one question for you. I don't know if you've got a total time constraint, but you mentioned, no, no, I don't. You mentioned like devil, devilry or something earlier in, um, in reference yeah, I mean, to the destruction. I was wondering well, de- if demonic was, yeah, demonic was the word I used. And yeah. um, I, just so you know, I'm a religious naturalist. I'm a sacred realist. So I don't interpret any mythic language or any spiritual or religious language as anything literal about anything otherworldly or supernatural. So evil for me is pursuing one's own interest, one's own benefit, one's own wealth at the expense of the larger community upon which one depends and or in, on the, the, you know, at the expense of the future. So that's so evil actions. Demonic, I'm using that term as any system, mm. economic system, political system, social structure, any system that makes it easy or inevitable for uh, millions of otherwise normal good people to do evil. Mm. If the word demonic has any meaning in a modern context whatsoever, it's got to apply to structures or systems that make it easier or inevitable for millions of us to harm the future or betray the community of life for our own benefit, just to, you know, just to pursue the good life or whatever. So that's, that's the way I use those terms. Well, I was wondering, have you heard of uh, Jack D. Forbes? Yes. In fact, um, I, read, uh, I read and recorded uh, something uh, just recently uh, within the last uh, several weeks that I also posted to SoundCloud um, on, you know, so the, you know, cannibalism and uh, his critique of, of Columbus and other cannibals and that sort of thing. Yeah. yeah, I was just reminded of that when you, when you use that term. And I think that, um, I think that it's very valuable to yeah. To understand I do too. And to think, yeah, to think through them a little I, bit more, more deeply, you know, more deeply than, yeah, well, than greed. And I think his analysis of the, the Wetiko disease and the cannibal sickness is a brilliant way of describing the psychological transmission of that evil that you're talking about from person to person. That, that, selfishness to the point of destructiveness and brutality and exploitation and total disregard for others. Yeah, so exactly. And now I'm, I'm planning on reading and I may actually record the audio because one of the things I do whenever I uh, become aware of a book that is highly regarded by many people who I um, value and respect um, I, I sometimes call it deep sustainability scripture. Like, like what are the most inspired writings um, mm, yes. that are ecocentric, life-centered, or help us understand um, the impact of civilization and sort of an ecological worldview? I record them. So I've recorded like, you know, somewhere close to a thousand hours, uh, maybe more of what I consider and what others consider the best of the best, sort of the, you know, cream of the crop stuff. And um, I recorded sort of some excerpts that were uh, printed on, on uh, DGR recently, and I may end up recording the entire book because, yeah, I think there's, there's tremendous value 
uh, and sometimes effectiveness in language of reverence and language of condemnation mm. that is often associated with religion, but mm. that should not be owned by the otherworldliest, by the people who interpret religion as supernatural or otherworldly, that this language of, of, of reverence, of praise, uh, and language of condemnation um, can be repurposed. And that's part of what I'm trying to do. Absolutely. Well, Michael, I really appreciate you having me. This was a fun conversation. It's stuff that I really appreciate. And, you know, these, I've never been um, great at small talk. <laughs> I mean, I love hanging out with people and having a good time and having fun and stuff. But, um, you know, my sister's partner, he'll walk in the door and he'll be like, so what's it going to take to stop institutional racism? You know, <laughs> that's, that's kind of where I'm at with conversations. I'm like, all right, let's get down to business. For more information about this project, go to postdoom.com.